Welcome to the Universal Dancer Podcast with your host, Leslie Zare, author of The Alchemy of Dance and The Alchemia Remedies, coming to you live from Cairo, Egypt, the ancient land of Chem. Journey with us to explore sacred dance, the sacred arts, the mystical and the magical. Join a community of like-minded souls seeking to understand the cosmic dance of co-creation through the sacred arts. Come along and expand your mind, ignite your creativity, and explore something new and something old. Welcome. Welcome to the Universal Dancer podcast. I'm glad you could join us for this special roundtable discussion. This is a a special event, and it will be live streaming on YouTube as well as my group on Facebook, which is the Universal Dancer community. So if you're interested in sacred dance, please join us there. Just put in the the Alchemy of Dance community and you will find the page. Okay, so please like and share with your friends, anyone you think would be interested. I think we're gonna have an interesting discussion. Uh, We have a lot of people who are experts in the field that are gonna be talking to you about using dance for healing trauma. And I think this is an important subject, which is come to the forefront at the moment. And I think that dance is a, a wonderful way to to work with trauma. So we're going to get a lot of advice about how we can do that. So let's just jump right in. I want to begin by introducing you to my my guests, and we will begin with Stefan. Stefan actually was the inspiration for having this. Um, this conversation. Stefan is a globally acclaimed dance facilitator and choreographer. His book, DanceWise and peer group projects offer movement and dance resources for transforming trauma. So thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you for, for being here today. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me and for um, going with the theme that I suggested. I'm really pleased to have several of us putting our ideas and experience together. Yes, I think it's going to be an important conversation. And we also have Rebecca. Rebecca Faro is a movement embodiment facilitator, a dancer, a poet and performer with 30 years experience leading movement and self-inquiry courses in Spain and the UK. She also offers online courses covering different topics and individual sessions called Movement Maps. So welcome, welcome Rebecca. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And we have Mary Lee. Some of you may remember Mary Lee from the Sacred Dance Summit. Mary Lee Hardenberg has been a practicing dance movement therapist for over four decades. She works in hospital settings, private practice, and loves supervising dance therapists. So thank you, Mary Lee. Thank you for being here. It's nice to to be with you again. (laughs) Thank you. I'm honored to be part of this uh, group today and looking forward to it. Thank you. 
And last but not least, we have Alia Thabit, is an Arab-American Oriental belly dance artist, creativity coach, author, and somatic experiencing practitioner. Her work celebrates belly dance's ideals of feeling, playfulness, and joy with the intention to transmit these qualities to the world. Welcome, Alia. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining us. I'm I'm very excited. This is this is kind of a new topic for me, but one that since I've gotten involved in has become important in my life. And as I said, when Stefan suggested this, um, I just thought it was a wonderful. I I would like to learn more. So I'm probably the least experienced of all of you in this particular um, area. So I'm, I'm here to learn as well. So I think we will just begin at the beginning. Uh, let's talk about what trauma is. I think there's a, um, people tend to think that trauma is, is something quite drastic, like someone being raped or, or soldiers coming back from war. But I, I think it's a much broader topic and Let's get into that because I think it, it, we need to understand what it is and that it actually affects a lot of people um, more than we may realize. So how would you describe trauma in, in your practices? What, how does it show up? Shall uh, I? Oh, please. Mary Lee, why don't you, you begin? Okay. Um, I actually think that every human on the planet uh, is traumatized because uh, by the age of five, because we all come onto the planet with a certain authentic self, and then that authentic self gets squished down. Like you, you must, you must go along with these cultural norms. Um, so I, I think in in that way, everybody has trauma. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, of course, what you were saying, if, if people have uh, acute traumatic moments, uh, that totally raises the bar of trauma. So I think there, there are different uh, levels of trauma. And then, of course, there's the uh, body or physiological level of trauma. Then there's emotional trauma. And then I, I think there's cognitive trauma also. So that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. Yes, and I think the way that that our societies have come to to raise children too has traumas about not feeling safe. So I think that we need to think about this when we're uh, just in general as as maybe we need to change the way that society is is rearing children from the very beginning. Because I agree with you that from the very beginning there is a lot of trauma, and I remember hearing. Um, an interview with uh, Bessel van der Kolk, and he started by working with veterans in the VA hospital uh, who had come back from wars, but he then started to work with childhood trauma, and the statistic was ridiculous, and I, I probably shouldn't mention this because I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was staggering. It was something like there are 10 times more people suffering from childhood trauma than from like wartime trauma. 
And that was just amazing to me that there that it it's a much bigger problem in those areas, actually. We we always think of it in these extreme situations, but that there's actually a larger percentage of the population that are suffering from childhood trauma than than from these other types of trauma. Yes, and then in the psychological world, um, in addition to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, there's a, there's a new one called complex uh, uh, trauma disorder. And what that has to do with is just over and over at, at growing up, there are just many little mini traumas. And, and uh, as I said, it, it could be emotional or uh, uh, cognitive trauma too. But that, so that complex uh, PTSD is, is sort of new, but we can all understand that. So thank you. Stefan, you want to? Yeah, I, I'm very much on the same page as you there, Mary Lee. Um, and what, uh, let me take a step back in a moment to see, because maybe the word trauma has different meanings for different people. But just before that, about the childhood thing, the younger we are when events happen or when events don't happen that we hope would happen for example you know the um the comforting arms of, of a loving older person um that the younger we are the more it actually affects the way that our development goes so in our very sort of deep neurology wiring brain and and even the way we feel in our body and our muscles are affected very very much at a young age and it's quite hard in a way um, as we get older to rewire it, but we can to some degree, uh, which is the good news. But just to take a step back, if, if I may, everybody experiences difficulties and challenges. I mean, it's just built into life. And what makes an event tra traumatizing is that it feels overwhelming. The same event may traumatize one person and not so much another because it's it's the um it's what we're left with afterwards mm. and the difficulty when it's overwhelming is that it affects us in such a deeply physical embodied neurological way that we don't know how to process it so if we're lucky enough to have a, a great support group like let's say a community that dances and sings together or a very loving family it may be more possible to um to kind of move through some of the feelings as we might move through a grief process and gradually emerge but in many cases there isn't a, there isn't very much understanding or support and that's why i'm really pleased that we can talk about it now to see what uh, what can we kind of understand and put in place to make it a more supportive world? Because as you said, Mary Lee, everybody experiences trauma one way or another. And if we look at the world news, there's a lot of collective trauma being felt, um, even just by people who are witnessing from a distance. It's very, very painful. So we need as much uh, understanding and um, you might say love in action as possible at this time, I would say. And I think you made an interesting point also about how different people respond to trauma. And again, from Bessel van der Kolk's book, he, this is a, a quote from his book, people who actively do something to deal with a disaster, res rescuing loved ones or strangers, transporting people to a hospital, being 
part of a medical team pitching tents or cooking meals, utilizing their stress hormones for their proper purpose and therefore are much at much lower risk of becoming traumatized. So I think that this is important to realize that there's a certain amount of helplessness uh, or when we feel helpless, and I hope we can go deeper into this talking about the different responses to trauma. You, you touched on it here, but, but let's go into it more deeply. Does anyone else want to respond to this before we? Yes, Alia. Yes. Um... Okay. Um, so I agree wholeheartedly with um, everything that uh, Stephen and Mary Lee have said. And I would add that in a nutshell, trauma is a chronic dysregulation of the nervous system. And that happens when we are unable to or prevented from adequately defending ourselves in any kind of situation from tiny to huge that our nervous system and our body perceives as you know a danger a threat and so when we would like want to you know the body wants to defend itself and protect us and when it is unable to do that sometimes that impulse gets stuck and is uh, never gets expressed and causes like sand in the gears and the nervous system never quite gets to reset back to its normal happy level and when that happens over and over again uh, as mary lee talked about um, uh, chronic ptsd cptsd it, it just sort of magnifies and magnifies itself and I think this, again, comes back to often what's socially acceptable, because a lot of times it's not socially acceptable to respond. You're not supposed to yell or scream and children should be seen and not heard or um, I can deal with this or I'm going to power through this. And instead of that happening, you end up being traumatized by whatever the situation is. It's, it, it can't express itself. And I think that is a very, a very cultural thing, at least. And, and maybe people who are from different cultures can address this. But I see that here, like here, yelling at people is in Egypt, I'm talking about, is socially acceptable. If somebody crosses your boundary, you yell at them. And I find this really difficult because I was not brought up that way. I was brought up to power through, to stay silent, which is toxic because at some point then you just explode. But I think that not that yelling or anger is a good thing, but anger needs to be expressed. If it could be expressed by just asserting yourself in some way, that's healthy. But I feel that I don't have the skills to assert myself. So it, it builds and builds or, or I mm -hmm. take it inward. So I think that in that case, it, it is a social, um, you know, what the society considers acceptable. So I think that um, if we could, again, from the beginning, learn, have better skills at how to deal with situations, and not be in this children should be seen and not heard mentality, then I think um, 
there would be out more outlets for for releasing or not getting into to this at all. Um, yeah, Rebecca, you had something to to add to that. Yeah, I was um, struck by what everybody said and um, what Stefan said about um, you know the very early early experiences and um, especially the pre-verbal experiences and and um, lack of attachment. Uh, I know that when I was I I've, I always had to uh, an abandonment issue, for example, and I kind of worked backwards and found out that when I was six weeks old, I was taken to Singapore and then I had a dysentery thing. So I was in hospital for another six weeks. So that was like my whole life again, mm. you know. Um, so I think these very early pre-verbal um, times when we're dis, you know, attached can be very damaging and traumatizing. Yeah. Yes. Stefan, you have something well, to add. Yeah, I was enjoying half going back a little bit to what you were saying, Leslie. I was enjoying what you were saying, and um, I think that there are many ways to let ex let emotions out. And the great thing about um, expressive arts is that it's a way that do no harm, or we hope it does no harm, is a very um, uh, creative and kind of community-based safe way of channeling emotion so that we're not pushing it down and we're also not, um, and the difficulty with free expression of anger is that when you're on the receiving end, you may respond even more more angrily, and then it it, uh, it it accelerates, and we end up thumping each other. But in a dance, I've never seen that happen. Um, a great passion is expressed. There's stomping, there's leaping, there's a great discharge and catharsis of energy, uh, if we want there to be, and there can be a very steady, holding, healing atmosphere at times as well. Um, and it doesn't escalate into something else. Would someone like to speak to, I, I think it would be important to talk about the actual sort of mechanism. Is there anyone who would like to speak to that? Like what, you know, in the, in the nervous system, what happens with trauma? Because I think that that's important for people to understand the actual physical pathways in the body and uh and how you someone might become traumatized someone who doesn't think they're traumatized may have gone into these pathways and may be suffering and not realizing that it is a trauma response not that we should all label ourselves as traumatized but you know maybe we need new language too because i think the trauma does imply some you know big well, it is big in the in 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 the your system, but um, it can happen in small ways that can also be quite uh, just change your life and how you process everything that happens to you. So, would anyone like to kind of explain what happens when uh, in the nervous system when when we're faced with something? I was just wondering if Alia might like to take that one because the somatic training is so relevant to that. I could do that, but I'm going to do it in a very, like a very general non, uh, 
jargony kind of way. Even better. (laughs) (laughs) So if you, your nervous system goes all through the body and connects to all these organs. And if you like Google um, nervous system, you'll see it's just everywhere. It's everywhere in your body. Um, And there are recent developments have shown that there are multiple pathways of the nervous system. There's, you know, the, and there, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make this simple and I'm ending up going complex. So there's basically two main branches, two main uh, parts of the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is like, you know, it's the one that prepares for things to happen. And if you're going to, if you're in a threat situation and you would want to fight or flee, that's the sympathetic nervous system that prepares you for that. If you're a performer and you're going to go out and perform, the sympathetic nervous system revs up and prepares you for that. And it like makes everything, charges everything up and makes you ready to go. The parasympathetic nervous system moderates the sympathetic nervous system and it calms you down. And it's, you know, obviously that's also vital because you can't run around like that all the time. So something happens and it could like, it could be very, very tiny. It could be like, you know, a shadow that, you're little and it's a shadow and, and that's really scary. It could be that tiny, but something happens that, you know, your body basically, not even necessarily your brain, uh, perceives as a danger. And so, you know, ideally you would, you know, either engage with it socially and chat it up or you would run or you would fight, but sometimes you can't because you're prevented from, or you're, you know, it's too scary because trauma is things that are uh, too much, too big, too fast. And so you might just be like, you know, frozen. And sometimes we just kind of stay like that. (laughs) You know, sometimes we can, finally we can move, but things, and sometimes things happen over and over and over again that push us into that state of freeze because the third self-defensive action, well, the four if you count social engagement, um, and I do, but the classic three are fight, flight, and freeze. And freeze is the oldest one, like, you know, bunnies freeze when there is any kind of threat. Normally, and any living animal, you know, out in out in the wild is engaged in uh, potential threat situations multiple times a day. Like, oh, okay, oh, okay. And like either, either you live or you die, right? You get eaten or you go on to nibble, nibble things yourself the next day. And the nervous system reacts and the threat goes away and the nervous system closes down. But when the um, the threat doesn't go away and you're sort of like 
forced to stay in that state of uh-oh. And sometimes that happens again and again and again and again, and you don't get to express those various self-defensive tendencies. Two things happen. One is that you're more likely to bypass flight and fret, fight and flight in the future and go directly to freeze. Uh, and the other is that your nervous system never quite, and freeze is the parasympathetic coming in to like, you know, you have, if you have an engine in your car and you have your foot on the gas and, but the car isn't going anywhere because you have your foot on the brake too. It's, it's like that the sympathetic nervous system revs you up and then nothing's going to happen. And you're like, so the parasympathetic comes down and puts a lid on that and closes that down. And when that lid doesn't get to come off and the sympathetic nervous system doesn't get to completely downregulate and settle, then you have that chronic little thing. And I've heard it described in many ways. I often think of it as a thorn because if you have a thorn, it hurts and it's infected and it's a pain and it's awful but you can talk about it all you like and it won't do anything. You have to take the thorn out in order to change things. And it's the same way with trauma because it's located in the body in these little places where uh, an, an impulse of self-defense got short-circuited and never got to be uh, expressed. Does that answer your question, Leslie? Yes, and and I and and that's kind of the point that I really wanted to make is that this this freeze pathway I think is the one that a lot of people don't know about, and so they just sort of uh, and a lot of people do this, and I think it's it's so common again because in in societies where you're not supposed to where it's if it's not socially acceptable to express yourself, then you're probably just going to stop yourself. A lot of us just like step out um, and kind of dissociate from the the situation, and I think that that's that's a response that's so common mm. that people don't relate to trauma. They just think that it's and it is a, a learned behavior in a sense, or it it happens. Well, it's not as as much in your head, probably as in your body, but it is something that, as you said time after time after time where you just repeat that behavior and that just becomes what happens and i don't think that people i think people may see themselves as somebody who steps out but don't necessarily know that that's where it comes from and and to me that's unfortunate because trauma is something that you can heal and and we'll get into that in a minute so people who have those pathways should just if they can realize that, oh, hang on, this is this is a pathway that's been created, but there is a way to get out of this. I'm not stuck with this for the rest of my life, or even to be able to identify it, that it actually came from some traumatic experience, like you said, that could have been something really small in their childhood that seemed really big that this is something that can be overcome and that we can learn new ways of dealing with things. But we can't do that if we don't recognize that there's a problem or that it, it came from something and 
that it that we need to build these new pathways in order to better uh, respond to things in the future. I wouldn't necessarily think about it like um, like a neural pathway as in, you know, when we develop a new habit and we have to sort of lay down those neurons and then that gets myelinated and we, you know, we set it in place as a, uh, a survival strategy that we had to, that we had to employ in order to survive. And that's the important thing is that we survived and we're still alive and because we're still alive, we have the capacity to renegotiate those things that happened in the past, which we may not even remember because uh, as Rebecca mentioned, things can happen when before you have memory. People don't really have much memory until they're about three years old. And lots of things can happen before you're born, during birth, after birth, up to three years old that, you know, you don't, you're never going to remember no matter how hard you try, but the residue and those effects are still there. And also if people are shamed, because as a child, if, if the parent then came and said, why are you, why are you afraid of that shadow? That's so silly. Why are you afraid of that shadow? Then you may re your memory of the, of the event may start to take on a different kind of, um, the memory may be changed as far as what actually happened because you don't want to think that, oh, I'm a scared, you know, I'm just a scared little child or whatever. And mm. you don't remember the, the incident properly just because you've kind of blocked it out of your, what actually did happen. You block it out yeah. of your mind because it's not, uh, it's not something that you want to remember because of the response of, of someone around you. True. Stefan, you wanted to, to add to I'd, that. I'd love to. Well, there are so many points that I, I'd love to, you know, respond to, and I'm aware of uh, time, but I, I very much like the way that you explained it, Alia. It was very easy to follow um, the idea of a, a rabbit that gets startled, but it comes through it, you know, 10 minutes later, it's munching a lettuce. Um, but when, when there's something that we would call traumatic, and if it happens to a human, um, very often we can't find the way back to the lettuce. We, we either get stuck in that numbness because we've closed down or we get stuck in hypervigilance and we just can't switch off and sleep or relax or enjoy things. And just to put that in very everyday terms, um, there's a huge incidence today of depression and sometimes related to that suicide and very often among young people, sadly. And depression can be it may not be but it can be related to this feeling of being shut down of mm. somehow that in the process of surviving as you say we have to survive in the moment the wisest thing that our body can do before we even think about it is to close down but it's how do we get back from there or at the other end if we talk about chronic um being switched on ready to flee or fight it turns into chronic anxiety, which is another problem that we recognize a much more everyday problem talked about than trauma. But very often, I think there's a connection, especially when we look at collective trauma as well as individual events in our life. So I, I, that's why I, I, it's really weird that I love discussing trauma. It seems a little bit 
um, I don't know, kind of odd to me. But on the other hand, I just love to to create, well, to co-create clarity so that, uh, as you were saying, Leslie, so that we become able to support one another through each other's potentially traumatizing moments so that we can become more like rabbits and get out of it again and hop about, which is the, the what, where we want to be. There's, there's always going to be stuff happening, but it's the resilience that we need. And, and to, again, to realize the things that we know need to be cured or resolved could lead back to trauma. Gabor Mate's work with addiction. And again, from Vanderkolk's book, uh, the, he's quoting a, a research project, and I'm sorry, I don't know who did the research project, um, that calculated, he was calculating the cost, excess cost, so, so or the cost of, um, of trauma, and specifically related to child abuse. He calculated that its overall costs exceed those of cancer or heart disease, and that eradicating child abuse in America would reduce the overall rate of depression by more than half, alcoholism by two thirds and suicide, drug use and domestic violence by three quarters. So I think it comes up in these places that people don't necessarily realize that it's related to trauma, but it is. we all know about depression or anxiety, and there we are trying to find coping me mechanisms or, or medications or, or whatever to deal with the depression or the anxiety, but that's the symptom and that's not the cause. And it seems that, that trauma can be the root cause of so many things. So again, in a more holistic way, if we can go back to whatever the cause of it is, deal with that. And if it is, if it has become, um, you know, just the way that we're dealing with what happens in our life so that we are re-traumatizing ourselves over and over again by going into freeze or, or whatever uh, kind of mechanism we go into, then, yeah, if we can get to the cause of what it is, if we can resolve that or at least become aware. I, I am not a, a trauma specialist at all. My my interest in trauma came researching the the book that I'm writing and uh, on dance. And then I, I got into all these things with trauma. So I've been working on myself. And just by reading these books, I've resolved so many things in my own life. So I think that we can live happier and fuller lives. If you can make progress just from reading a book, imagine the progress you can make if you actually address these things and do some type of of work on them specifically so that's kind of what i um yes mary lee um i'm thinking right now about how the interweaving between trauma and shame is and i, I love well leslie you brought up the word shame I love this. It's a, it's a movement thing about we have three reactions to shame and maybe some of the panel have other thoughts about this, but one is we can go away. So we retreat. So we, we, we go away. The other is a sort of a cross, like we, we fight, like slap the person, you know, in our mind. But the third one is we actually approach and we, we try to appease uh, that, that person. Um, 
so I, and then of course the overall antidote in my world for shame is contact and connection. And I think the same is true for trauma. Like that, that there's something about whether it's connecting with and contact with other people or having that contact with our inner, our inner observer to uh, name what's, what's going on. And so we have that internal contact. Um, and then I just want to say that uh, trauma is not a life sentence. So that's no, I'm not saying. at all. And I think that that's what we're trying to do by by having this conversation is to, you, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about how to use dance in in healing uh, trauma. But uh, we need to first understand what that is um, before we just to realize, I think, how widespread it is. I, I suppose that's what was so shocking to me is I just didn't realize how it was involved in so many things. Uh, I'm somebody who suffers from anxiety and I had always been trying to do, you know, find coping mechanisms for the anxiety, which dance was a very good one. It could be very grounding and discharging energy, but I always felt I wasn't getting, it wasn't deep enough. My understanding wasn't deep enough. But if I can then realize that this has all come from traumatic experiences and I can actually go back to that and start to, you know, take that apart, then then that creates a much deeper kind of healing. So, um, yeah. Yes, Stefan. What you were saying, Leslie, is it's one pathway which works very well for some people which is to actually unravel the kind of the mysterious knot at the beginning of the story of, let's say, a chronic anxiety. In my case, I could say some chronic pain, which I kind of thank because it sent me on a journey, which has been a very good journey. Um, but there's a great interest now in what is what's called embodied therapy. And dance is definitely part of embodied therapy, because as um, I think more than one person said, we may, what happened that was the, let's say, the greatest cause of, uh, of how we are now might have happened at an age where we were too young to remember, or it might have happened at a later age, but because it was an overwhelming experience, our memory doesn't actually store it. The amygdala switches off because it's protecting us from a toxic memory. Um, so to the journey back to the memory of the cause may have a therapeutic value and it may not. And embodied support whereby we learn about the, the vagus nerve and the sort of master controllers of our own, um, you could say wiring, the nerves, the the brain and all the all the glands that kind of fire us up. When we can start to dance with those metaphorically and literally, we can loosen things up because it's all a matter of unfreezing the thing that's become frozen, which in its healthy and natural state would know how to restore itself. It's finding the, the path to restoring ourselves. So the story may be involved in that but not necessarily tracking the story might even be re-traumatizing a lot of work is to do with building up our resources and our flexibility and our response ability well for me i don't know what the trauma was 
uh, that when I say going back, I mean going back to understanding the, the p different pathways and to realize that this dissociation or, uh, you know, these, these different, those I could recognize. And I think that that's, that's why I want to explain this fully, because I think a lot of people would recognize those things within themselves that they may, that they may dissociate, they may not respond to whatever's happening. And again, this is, this is the point we're getting to is that it is about this response. It is the Whatever's ability happened. to yeah. respond that is the healing part of it. But I could identify in myself that I wasn't responding. I don't, I don't know. And that I had created some kind of a, a behavior mechanism that was always taking me in a, a certain direction. So I agree because yes, it, if you were to uh, remember whatever it was, it could re-traumatize you. So I'm not suggesting that everybody go back and dig up whatever their original trauma was, but to be able to recognize that response or lack of response and to be able to do things to uh, reprogram on whatever level so that you can become more fully alive, I think ultimately is, <laughs> is the place that, that it can and hopefully will take us to. Anyone else want to? Yes, Rebecca. Yeah, and I think um, I agree with what you say. It's it's often when you move, especially if you've had a pre-verbal trauma, so, so that trauma doesn't really have words, but it has feelings and it gets trapped in the body. So it might be that you can't, you can't even remember or, or it's not, it's it's so like Stefan said, so traumatizing that you don't remember. Um, but you can locate it in if you can locate it in your body by breathing into it and feeling it, allowing, turning towards it, I suppose, because so often I think with overwhelming feelings, yes, we turn away, we yeah, we drink, we we eat, we push it down you know so so the body it's like that thing the body doesn't lie the body the body holds it all so that's why it's so so poignant and powerful to to be able to give it expression through the body yeah well and let's go into that i mean that is kind of i think we've we've set a good foundation here for understanding let's go into that you most of you work in different modalities. So maybe you could explain a little bit about what you personally do, um, how you use dance to heal trauma or things that you've done with your clients or yourself. Anyone who'd like to, Stefan, let's. Um, I'm happy to launch in and I'm very interested to hear what other people say. It's it's great that we're coming at it from different angles with different resources. Um, I've done a lot of dancing in circles, which um, are rooted in the very old village and tribal dances in societies where in many cases, um, 
dancing is like we think of literacy you just wouldn't you would really hope that everybody would enjoy dance and would would feel at home with it and would participate it's not a competition it's an inclusion and when that's part of your um regular activity there's a lot of co-regulation so during the ups and downs of life and even major upheavals and and you know uh, very undesirable events you've got that already built in as a practice that you come back to we don't look at dance normally as a practice we look at it as a uh, enjoyment or something that some people do because they look good um but in many older societies it, it was the point where people came together differences were put to one side and you're literally physically holding each other in a circle and holding the kind of the group identity and all our feelings in that circle not necessarily spoken in words but by by being present so one aspect of the dances that i like to introduce is that is that container it's a it's a co-regulating container if you look at it in trauma terms where we support one another but there are other aspects which um as soon as you think of them you think of course um what happens if you stomp or shake you're actually doing the things that animals do if they got shocked they they shake or they sort of stomp it out or they bolt, bolt for it um it's it's a very natural it encourages our body's natural release to um to happen because otherwise if, as you, as you said leslie earlier we're educated to sit still and behave ourselves and that doesn't give us an outlet for emotion it might be a good place to learn mathematics but we're not learning about emotional release so um almost every form of dance offers a form of emotional release and the slower aspect of dance offers a kind of supported moving meditation where the parasympathetic system the healing system is invited through the music and swaying movements and slightly sort of maybe hypnotic or trancey atmosphere it's invited to um we are invited to feel safe and to come back into that space so if we're not finding it naturally on our own um either dancing with others or on our own but in to meditative music with more swaying gentler slower movements is going to enable us to come back to that state and i'll just add one more thing i could go on forever but i want to add one more thing because i find it so interesting there are so many congruences in music there are so many patterns there's the pattern of the rhythm there's the pattern the melody creates uh you might say story there's the tones of the instruments and the different ways that they impact on our body and as soon as we start moving patterns occur whether it's spontaneous dance or, or um structured dance there are complex geometries far more complex than when we walk or go and pick up a cup of tea um so we're completely surrounded by coherences and patterns and the the stuckness and shutdownness and anxiety that may be hanging around us as a result of whatever in the past um i would say it it, it softens because we're, we're in this great ocean of possibility we come back to an ocean of myriad possibilities there's just a few like starting points of how dance can enable us to come back to our wholeness and i think in in ancient cultures or in 
in indigenous indigenous cultures there would be regular dance events so that people would regularly shed some of that energy or be able to stamp it out or and when this is a, a, a just a regular practice i think that that can be very healing for the whole community just to have things like that some kind of outlet to regularly which again we can do individually we can join a dance class or something but i think in the past people did that they on some level were aware that that needed to happen and and it was just part of the culture anyone else yeah go ahead stefan well just a quick one that being being um a multicultural uh, if you're in a multicultural urban community, the shape of that will be different. If we recreate it, it will need to have a kind of a different form that enables us to be much more diverse than we might have been in a in a traditional village. Who else would like to share how they? Yes, Mary Lee. Um, yes. So, <clears throat> um, so I come from the dance therapy field and um, our training is uh, very much in, uh, uses the circle, N not always, but I'm just gonna tell you about my early training. So uh, you, you would go into a room and you would try to feel the atmosphere, what was going on. Then you would pick the music that you felt uh, captured the, the feeling. And then you would invite people to come to gather into a circle and then um, there's what one of my teachers called the gulping moment, it, where because we we aren't we're trying to um, uh, evoke a response. We're not trying to teach a, a pattern. Uh, this was my early training. So the gulping moment was like, uh oh, what 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 are we going to do? So you look for little shadow moments, or you look if there's any moving going on, and if not, maybe you'd start with a very simple weight shift, and then just sort of see what, what emerges with a, with a give and take. Um, and then, uh, so there's an arc of, of the session, which is uh, starting, with a, starting with a circle and sort of a warm up, and then a theme would emerge. And then at the end, you have the calming down and coming back to the, to the circle, maybe holding hands or uh, touching each other. So touch is also an important uh, part uh, of our field. Um, so we look for these moments of synchrony, which in the movement analysis world, there when we we just feel we don't know why, but we just feel a sudden connection. And one one way to explain synchrony is if you've ever been uh, sitting next to somebody or driving in a car, and you both at the same moment turn and start talking to each other. That's a moment of synchrony. And we can have moments of synch synchrony through rhythm or through space. Um, and then this is a sidebar, but I, I love uh, what a, a teacher of circle dance said, um, which in the ancient villages, when you go around in a circle, uh, so maybe I start in, in the uh, this position and then halfway around, I'm in the other position. So. Uh, just through the miracle of working together in a circle, you learn you learn some empathy. It's like, oh, uh, this now I'm standing in this place, and I can understand a little bit better about that other place. So those are just a few of my words I wanted to say. Thank you.
And and tell us a little bit about the just what uh, modalities you're using when you do this work. Um, Are you using specific modalities or, I mean, in your dance therapy or it's kind of just all, many things that have come together? Um, so in the, in the sort of traditional, uh, starting with the circle that I was explaining, which um, a lot of the pioneers of dance therapy used circles because as Stefan was saying, it's, it's, it's just an ancient archetype where there isn't a leader um, so the modality, ah, can you say a little bit more about your question about modality? Yes. I just wondered if it was coming from any specific type of dance or, or background or whether it, you're learning. I don't know that much about dance therapy, so I'm, I'm not sure whether you as a therapist are collecting different pieces from from different types of dance or whether there are very specific ones that are geared towards healing that you are using maybe not just to treat trauma to treat many different things but as a dance therapist kind of those are the tools in your toolbox okay great i understand your question that's an excellent question in, in our training, uh, like I had to take lots of different dance classes um, because if I'm working with a, a client who uh, ha has a certain movement repertoire, if, if I can't be with that person, that's the main thing. It's like uh, the, the dance is communication. So when I'm the leader of, of a circle uh, or, or session, um, I'm not necessarily using any particular modality. Uh, it, uh, um, we all have to study movement analysis and we, we learn um, developmental uh, aspects of, of the body and the neurological aspects of the body. But um, what my training was is I'm really looking what's happening with the people in my group. And so a lot of times there are movements that, you know, nobody's ever necessarily done before. Um, because we're just uh, we're just going with with what's what's happening in the group. Now, having said that, there are there are certain things like 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 a swing or coming toward and away from each other that everybody who does circle dancing knows. These are sort of archetypal things. But I would say no, we're not doing this or that kind of dance. We're we're really trying to be in the moment and responding to what's going on. And oftentimes we pass leadership. So if I'm the leader in the beginning and I say, so just be with me as we're doing this movement and then I'll pass it on to the person on my left and you continue this movement until you're ready to start changing it. Um, so that the sense of, of autonomy and having power and a sense of mastery in each of the uh, people that we're working with, that that, that begins to be uh, seated. Stefan, you wanted to add yeah, something? Yeah, I, ju I just wanted to kind of, um, uh, just to kind of add to that, um, or just, just to, to say, totally agree because one of the one of the things about 
any form of traumatic pattern that that resides with us is there's a tendency to feel disempowered we lose our confidence and connection and i think what you're talking about merrily is coming in with a very open agenda where in a way we're listening to the group and inviting them to find their their own authentic expression through movement and kind of mirroring it back to them and helping them to feel supported in it so that it might emerge further um which i i think is a very uh, empathy based and lovely framework because it you're not coming in with a you may have a bit of a back backup plan but you're coming in with a very open space to offer and to hold safely Oh, thank and you. Uh, thank for you, Stephen. all of I, you, no. oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just would say thank you, Stefan. I, 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 uh, I just felt very seen by you right now. So thank you. Yeah. And I'm wondering if mainly you're working in groups or you're working with individuals. Uh, so maybe everybody could answer that, but I'll just yeah. say so uh, for in dance therapy, it, it's both. So I was describing a group. Um, setting. Uh, when, I, when I work with individuals, um, it just, uh, again, as Stefan was referring to, it so depends on who, who the client is and what's going on with them. So um, sometimes uh, I would just start with lying on the floor. So um, we, we sort of have three questions, which is, uh, what body? Who owns this body? What can this body do? So sometimes, depending on the level of trauma in the client, um, they just might need to lie, lie down, uh, face up, and breathe, and uh, that I, I'm, I'm with them. And then um, maybe the next stage would be rolling, and then the next stage might be crawling, and then sitting. And so, so um, developmentally, we, we, want, we might need to recreate that. Other people come in and they're they're re they're ready to stand up and move and and then we might work on increasing their movement repertoire um, or their their use of space around the body because we believe that uh, the the more movement the bigger your movement repertoire the healthier your ego is and the same with the amount of space you take up if you just take up a little or a lot that is also relating to uh, a sense of self and and uh, mastery in the world. So I'd love to hear from other people. Yeah, Rebecca, you you wanted to oh, yeah. say something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I came originally from um, a classical dance background, um, and then at the age of sixteen, seventeen, I had a back injury. So that was a trauma in itself because I had to stop. It was. I was going into a, a contemporary dance career, and um, so then I I trained uh, through an Anna Halperin uh, method that she uses a lot of creativity uh, with her movement and art and movement and writing and and it was interesting because I noticed that um, it was more difficult for me. Um, to really get into my body, then it because I'd had all this learnt movement of ballet and all this, then it was for someone coming up on the street that you know 
had never really maybe moved much be before. So I had to do a lot of um, releasing of this learnt movement and this, this, this way of doing things. So, um, and you know, then I explored all sorts of other things, uh, especially authentic movement and, um, and also rebirthing. So for me, the breath and authentic movement is very much about usually do it with your eyes closed or with a blindfold on so that you can really go within and move from the inside out and just the only instruction really is to follow your body what your body wants to do and um, it's amazing how revealing that is um, and how the more you do it, I mean, I've done it before, 40 minutes with blindfold on and no music, because also, so, although I love to use music, um, music influences us, you know, you get light, happy music or dark, you know, and it makes your body want to move in certain ways. And so sometimes when I run groups, I don't do it straight away because people obviously find it a bit overwhelming. But as the week goes on or something, um, it's very interesting to move without sight and with no music. Um, it can really take you to places and help you unravel internal internal issues. Yeah. Like sensory deprivation to a certain extent, maybe. Yeah, and just really finding your own inner rhythms and your own inner dance yeah yeah mary lee wants to say something mary lee yes oh you're muted yes i wanted to ask rebecca go. thank you mm -hmm. i wanted to ask rebecca um about the role of the witness in the authentic movement because i feel that's so important mm -hmm. um and do you is that part of your authentic movement? Uh... Oh yeah, yeah. Thanks, Marily. Mar I, I, yeah, forgot to mention the witness. Yeah, which, yeah, obviously you have a witness, or to 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 hold space for you, and also obviously you're blindfolded or your eyes are shut to keep you in a safe space. But they are also really, really focusing on you, and so it's a very held space and a very safe space. And um, then afterwards, often there's a particular way of of sharing. Usually the um, mover shares first and expresses how that was for them. And then the witness, uh, witness just observes what they see really. So they don't say anything, oh, you look so pretty. They don't put, put that sort of thing on. They just observe you 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 were very small and your movements were very small and then you shuddered and and it's amazing to get that feedback and um you know to really because sometimes when you move you have no idea you're so in it you have no idea mm. what's happening if you like mm. so to get that reflection back is very powerful. That's that's so beautiful Rebecca and I I, I really feel that the external witness helps create an internal witness, which mm -hmm. I think is so important. So as we're dancing um, and we're learning new new dances or we're, we're with other people, we also have this, it's anchored 
into our own internal awareness. And I, I, I think it's so um, important having that external witness. And so when I'm moving with my eyes closed, I know I'm being seen, I know I'm safe, but also so um, what we say is if you're a witness, you have an internal mover. And if you're a mover, you have an internal witness. And that that really helps us create this internal awareness. Does, mm. uh, did that make sense, what I said? Yeah, it's beautifully put. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Alia, you, you do somatic experiencing, so maybe you can explain a little bit about what that is and, and how you use that. Sure. Um, I come from a belly dance background, uh, Middle Eastern dance and Arabic, and I, in my teens, I started taking belly dance classes because, you know, I thought it would be a cool cultural activity. And indeed, that's continued to inform my interest in it over the years. Uh, and I started to relate to it. And I was actually trained in those early days. It was an improvisational dance with a relatively modest movement vocabulary and a lot of live mu music. So it was really all about just like being able to respond to the music. Over time, I came in contact with Dunya McPherson's dance meditation. And she comes from a Sufi training and many of the practices in dance meditation come directly from that lineage, including a very, very slow movement often coupled with rhythmic breath where you're breathing in time to the music, so connected to the music, but moving very slowly so that you don't even have to have an idea of what you're gonna do. The movement is able to just evolve and also uh, connects to those cultural practices of improvisation and allowing the body to move as it wishes. So really you kind of get out of the driver's seat and let the body express itself as it feels to the music. Um, in, in, you know, working through some things of my own, and, and I found that I was able to work through things through that, that process of slow movement and rhythmic breath, you know, and I would go into it with intention. And, the, you know, the Sufi intention is connection to the divine. So, and the practice is introceptive. So we turn our eye inward where, you know, in most dance training, you're looking at a mirror we turn the eye inward and what is happening in my body and really noticing and feeling the muscles and the tendons and enjoying that, the qualities of movement. So in, in realizing that I had some really large things that you know didn't feel really, I didn't really wanna to try to tackle them so much on my own and I've, finally became aware of somatic experiencing, which is uh, traumahealing.org, if anyone is interested in that. And that changed my life. I read Peter Levine's book in an unspoken voice and had already been to some, you know, trauma therapist and did some EMDR and some tapping and, you know, okay. But I read that and it was like, oh, wow, yes, that's it. This is it because that was that whole concept of, you know, it's in the body and it just wants to get out. It's like, I love this. And, and um, you know, loved it so much that over the next few years, I went 
I, you know, found therapists and did some of that work and entered the training and became a somatic experiencing practitioner just because I found it to be so immensely helpful. Um, artists and, and dancers and really everybody tends to struggle with perfectionism and self-judgment and judgment of others and all kinds of things that I have found to be symptoms of unresolved trauma and and fear of making a mistake, you know, and, and all this stuff. And the the dance, the, the belly dance and the somatic experiencing align very beautifully because both of them are about uh, noticing and allowing these sort of involuntary movements to express where you're not planning the move. It's like, you know, in, in somatic experiencing, a lot of what we do is again, interceptive and, and we don't, we don't go deeply into like, you know, and then what happened with bad experiences, we stay very far on the edge, as far on the edge as we can possibly get and notice what happens in the body. What do you, you know, what do you notice? Any kind of sensations that come up, any kind of images that come up. And, and as practitioners, we're like on the lookout for involuntary movements, like, oh, huh, what is that? I wonder what would happen if you slow that down. And then you slow that down, and it's like, <laughs> because that's one of those self-defensive movements that did not get to be expressed, and it kind of has to happen on its own. It's the impulse comes on its own when there's a space for it to ex express itself. And so in the dance, in the same way, when you're moving slowly and when you're like engaged with the music and you're just allowing things to happen, things can have that opportunity to express themselves. Uh, I don't, anything else? I'm not sure. I think I got like the basics of your question with that. Stefan, you wanted to add something. Well, firstly, I'm so happy to learn this, Aliyah, because I've heard that term so many times. Um, and I feel sort of intuitively drawn to the idea of somatic experiencing, but I haven't directly had, uh, you know, the training. And it's given me some... Um, some sense of, of the potential of it. And if you think that um, so much of what we've been talking about is stuff that gets buried, that is somehow knotted inside for whatever reason. And this is, we're talking about allowing the knots to free themselves, trusting the body's wisdom to lead the way, not necessarily having to understand the whole story in fact, maybe keeping the story in a way that, that is a little bit safe and outside, but allowing the body to, to process what it's been stuck mm. with. I really love that. And I was thinking that coming from my uh, dance background, there's been a lot to do with structured dance, although I love teaching creative and expressive movement as well. Um, feeling for myself that the, the need and the healing power of that circle and actually moving as one body, moving together as one body in solidarity is very powerful to me. So within that very, you could say a tight structure, how can we create the freedom, the authenticity, the safety 
for people, especially if they're not feeling immediately at home. Um, so I just want to address that because it's kind of, it's almost like the other side of the coin, the other way into dancing, if you like, is to mm. come into a dance where people have uh, a form. It might be a barn dance, it might be salsa, it might be what I'm doing, which is international folk dances and choreographed dances. So one thing that I, um, I'm, go I'm going to reveal the source, which I don't always reveal to people, but I really want to. There's a wonderful woman who teaches voice called Frankie Armstrong. And when I went to a workshop with her in about 1980, she said, don't worry about what your note sounds like, because it's going to be a harmony somewhere in the world, whatever you sing. And I thought, oh, I love that. That was liberating. <laughs> so when I started teaching dances, um, I did an equivalent thing. I said, whatever steps you do while you're learning, it's a variation. Mm. And it might give me a great idea for another dance. And somebody added to that, it's an interpretation. So I don't mind. It's a variation or an interpretation, but it gives people freedom. And also as the session begins, if I realize that, um, as many of us are, that we might be dealing with um, stuff, our stuff. I want people to feel very free, feel very free to come in or out of the structured movement to take their space. And I make it clear to them that we consider that they're still participating if they want to witness, if they want to close their eyes, if they want to leave the room for a while and come back, they're still participating. It's as free as a, a village festival would be. So I think that gives that gives some, it gives an expanded possibility for feeling free and relaxed and not trapped in a situation where you might go wrong. If variations occur, well, we've, we've kind of said, don't worry, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and I also like the idea of creating an inner oasis for ourselves. Um, through visualization or perhaps through feeling our feet or breathing slowly it's almost like a practice that we can carry with us into potentially stressful situations and become more bold and adventurous because we know we've got that kind of oasis where we can mm -hmm. come back and center ourselves so that that just was what was bouncing off me as you were speaking earlier and very very glad for what you said and also this point of um, allowing yourself to step out. I think also we have to embrace the silence that even in music, there are pauses. So there are times mm. to be active and there are times to be silent. And again, to be aware of when those come up naturally and, and allow them to happen what, whenever they need to. Yes, I just, I just want to jump in again because it's one of, one of the quirks of the circle dance network, or some people call it sacred circle dance, is that um, the the guy who's generally attributed to be the the sort of inspirer of it is called Bernard Rosin, was very keen on that. He exp he experienced the traditional folk dances as a kind of moving meditation, and for him, he didn't want the end of the dance necessarily to be an uproarious applause but kind of digest the experience it is maybe it's a little bit like the um sensory experience it's like feel feel it in your body feel the aftertaste of it enjoy the afterglow before mm. 
charging on to the next one. And kind of depending on the music and the atmosphere of the dance, it might be a, a very short silence or a longer one. It's whatever arises naturally. To take it all in. Yes. We do have, uh, oh, go ahead, Alia. I'm going to go to some questions, but go ahead. I'll just be really brief. In terms of your question about, um, you know, freedom within the form, there is a, such a, a, a many, many genres of, you know, moving meditation. And I think a circle dance could certainly come into that uh, that context. And there are also many, many purposes of dance. And one of them is just social engagement. And social engagement is one of the things, lack of social engagement and lack of, you know, a, a caring space is one of those things that drives trauma home and being able to be in a safe space with people and moving. And people like folk dances because they feel so safe. You have a form, so you know what you're going to do and you can relax into that form and enjoy being with the people. And, you know, that's what that's about. And it creates a beautiful resonant field because when we're traumatized, we tend to be drawn always to focus on that negative and being in a space, a warm, loving space with people doing something physical and enjoyment is incredibly healing in and of itself. Would somebody oh, yeah. like to speak about co-regulation? Because I think this is an important concept. Mary Lee, go ahead. I was just going to comment about the mm -hmm. circle dance. Um, uh, well, the folk dances specifically. Often, 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 there's there's a cross um, in the footwork. There, there's crossing over, so it's crossing the midline, and that's very that's, that's very helpful for the vagus nerve. Uh, so I wanted to say that, and then also um, I love the idea of um, the slow and simple movements in, in a circle dance allow for more internal connection. So the, 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 the more, the quicker the movements are, the, the more we might tend to be uh, thinking about the movement and am I doing it right? But the very simple repeating patterns uh, allow us to increase this internal uh, sense of awareness. And I love the inner, inner oasis, Stefan, and uh, reminds me of what one of my spiritual teachers called the inner altar. So thank you. Yeah, and yeah, allowing I think that I like... variation in the movement helps too, where it's not really set, it's loose. That part makes a difference. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, and I think that whole idea of of that that balance between order and chaos, where there is some kind of a structure, but then there's freedom within that structure. If we look at something like ballet, where it's very structured and your goal is to look exactly like something, then then that's kind of one extreme or the other extreme of just improv with with that doesn't seem to have any I mean has no initial mm. structure um, that can be very intimidating to people but to have that midpoint where there mm. is there are perhaps some types of steps 
Uh, but within those steps, each individual is free to express in, in whatever way they want to, then that creates a support or that, that feel not, not feeling like you have to maybe bare your soul <laughs> by, by yeah. being completely creative, but to be slightly creative and, and find that balance between the two. Yes. Stefan. Oh, well, two, two things I wanted to respond about co-regulation, but I just want to respond to that one. Um, my vision at the moment, and the, the, what's happening today seems to be part of this vision, is creating a resource pool, um, which consists of people, experiences, ideas, um, that give people a lot of options. Because I think we're, we're so individual in our tastes and our wiring and in our cultural, what we're familiar with and what not. It's really, for me, it seems it can only be a good thing to have a number of doorways and windows that people can enter and explore. And for some people, the, the pathway might be to come through very free, inner directed movement and then increase the vocabulary of expression and movement and for others it's to learn some vocabulary and be held by a form uh cuban salsa or whatever and then branch out from there and find more freedom of expression within it i i don't think we necessarily have to marry it all together in one circle but it, but to have a lot of um yeah a, a lot of colors in the rainbow of, of opportunities but just, just to go back to your point about co-regulation, it's one of these buzzwords. Um, uh, anyone that talks about trauma loves to say, co you've got to say co-regulation in every <laughs> sentence, I think. Um, but when, when we're very young as infants, it's we know how to get excited. It's very natural to respond to stimuli and, and feel excited and, and engaged. Um, but we don't really know how to calm down and an, an external presence like the arms of a mother or the soothing voice of a, a caring person and feeling nurtured in your environment, having the, you know, being fed when you want to be fed. That's what enables us to learn how to calm down. So self-regulation isn't something that happens when we're very young, we, we we benefit so much from having support externally, and that's co-regulation. And I don't think that child self ever leaves us. It's always part of us. And there's a, there's a great healing, holding, comforting aspect from um, especially tactile connections with a person or a pet or um uh, and and anything that gives anything that gives our body a sense of being nurtured, which is one reason why we comfort eat or we love a most people love a hot bath and all sorts of things give us that sensation of being comforted. But I don't think that most people are aware. Uh, you're you know you said uh, co-regulation is this buzzword. Well, it's true if you know what it is. <laughs> But there's a lot of people that don't know what that is. They, they're unaware that our nervous systems ag actually regulate with other people that we're in close proximity to. And I think that people who, do, who work in the healing arts, for example, have always been aware of this. Mothers are aware of this, that when they're just near their child, the child calms down. Mm. So there are in certain instances where people maybe don't know what the word is, 
they see the effect, but then there are other people who are completely unaware that this actually is something, that it's not something woo-woo, that, that science is studying this and that it does actually happen. And I think that that's really important for people to realize that, especially as we move into a world of more technology. And I don't know, maybe it's possible to co-regulate over Zoom or over StreamYard. I don't think so, but uh, well, I'm sure it is to a certain extent, but, but, and, and I, I would be fascinated. I mean, if somebody would do, um, because I know dancing with other people, you're able to align. So I've had that experience and you do kind of feel connected when you see the other person or, or whatever. But I think that, I think that it's important for, for people to realize that this is an actual phenomenon that happens and that contact with human beings, whether it is over Zoom or in, per or in person, is important. That we can't just look at our phones and expect that to be uh, a substitute for, for, for something that, for some kind of communication or interaction. It's not the same. And we need to, uh, I think we need to make that point that, that this is part of how our nervous system operates. We haven't invented, we haven't invented a hugger phone yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's coming though, Steph. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's a beautiful uh, photo or video of uh, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. She's the founder of Body Mind Centering, and um, she's lying on her back. Her eyes are closed. She has an infant on her chest, and the caption is something like, uh, "Soothing is not." an internal reflex that we that we come onto the you know that we're born with it's something that we actually need to learn so i i just when we're talking about co-regulating yes. and how we need to learn that um it it, it it's there's a beautiful photo which i could try to send yeah you. yeah no that uh, yeah absolutely and and i'm a proponent of attachment style parenting and i can tell you how much criticism myself and my children get with their children about it because you know you're spoiling the child or what no this is just something that it's about our nervous system it's so basic and so fundamental that um it frightens me that people are not aware of that so i think that's why i just wanted to make a point about it because i mm -hmm. i think there are just a lot of people that don't know they don't realize that this is that this is how our bodies or our nervous systems work Rebecca, you wanted to say something? Or am I making that up? <laughs> yeah, just when you, uh, you, yeah, when you were speaking about your parenting you know, and, and your children's parenting, and it's so, so essential, I think, um, that attachment right at the beginning. And um, I remember when I had my first daughter in hospital and um, I was holding her at night in, uh, on my chest. And, I, and, a, and a woman, a nurse, came round with a with a torch and and said, "Put that baby down." You know, um, it, it was just impossible. And I was I, I I discharged myself the next day. I was only twenty one, but I knew it was so instinctual that this this is 
this is where the baby needs to be, right? It's been right inside me. Now she needs to be right, you know, and it's so important that and 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 how essential touch is and we, we all need touch and hugs and yeah, yeah, to connect with one another and feel community. And I think that's another great thing, you know, about dance and dance groups is, is that communal feeling is, is so, so valuable. Yeah. Well, I think those of us who have been doing it always knew that, but now we have some scientific research to to confirm or support what it is that that many of us always felt. So I think um, you know, let's take advantage of that, but but it's important to to bring that into the equation. Alia, did you want to say something? I thought I heard saw your hand. Oh, um, it was a while ago, but I can't remember what it was. Okay, well, it may come back to you, <laughs> Stefan. You wanted to yeah, say just, just to um to to respond to what you just said, Leslie. I completely agree. I think intuitively, a lot of um dance facilitators, song and music facilitators, physical therapists have been working to support heal and transform trauma for a long time but without the vocabulary that that other people would recognize and make sense or without a vocabulary that, that links with neuroscience and what scientists are talking about and there's there's a lot more rapprochement now which i i hope i got the right word there but you know coming together of perceptions and i find that very helpful that in fact people who who are very embedded in statistics and studies and neurology and brain science are coming round to saying the same things that we've always said which is or felt that the body the body and the mind are not two separate things they're intricately interrelated um and a lot of problems that we previously called mental mental problems or mental disturbances a whole system um partial shutdowns and and as somebody here said i can't remember who but it's not a life sentence and there are ways of helping to unravel helping to support helping us to surf on the waves when they come i do want to just add in something that we haven't quite mentioned but it i think it needs to be said when people have had severe trauma one of the challenges can be that when we get triggered the body doesn't the mind knows that this is not the most awful thing that could happen but the body doesn't it goes into um a sort of alert pattern which you might call panic it might be panic or it might be shut down and it's very hard to talk yourself out of it so when we're working with people who've experienced that intensity of trauma that well the aim is to maximize understanding and freedom and support if someone does feel very strongly triggered and not to and for them not to feel bad about it because it can happen and it may be very positive that things are coming through there was a question here about birth trauma does anyone want to address that and do you have any um, thoughts on that? Alia? 
Um, I'm not sure the context of the question, but in the somatic experiencing model, the training model, um, birth trauma is one of those things, you know, anything pre-birth, post-birth, birth, that whole area of time that is a thing. Um, for example, maybe, uh, you know, your parent wasn't able to get to the to the you know wherever the birth was going to take place and and had to had to wait and so you know that that can be a challenge um there's all all kinds of things that can happen and those are things that we tend to not be able to remember because we don't have memory at that time they also tend to um uh, tend to result in a pattern of global high activation, which is, you know, like a sort of edginess that doesn't settle down. But the beauty of the SE model is that you don't have to be able to remember it because you take the symptoms that you're experiencing right now in the moment and you just sort of work from there. For people who do experience that, you know, kind of high level of, of activation all the time, one of the things you can do is just tune in to your hearing and pass the sounds that are coming around you and all the way to like that hum that's always there, that backdrop of like the sound of the universe, the hum. And then you just listen to that and after a while, there'll be a little drop in that sound. And you just keep listening. After a while, there'll be another little drop. And you go to three, three drops. And then like notice what's different because you will maybe feel just a little bit more settled and, it, you know, trying to do that might be very activating in itself, like, this is stupid, blah, blah, blah. I'm just sitting here. And <laughs> so you kind of have to, like, persevere a little bit. And, and, and over time, that practice will little by little start to milk that high activation one drop at a time from the system. And you'll be able to slowly on your own start to come down one little step at a time. And that high activation comes from other things too, and it works for those other things too. Uh, but that that is that is often a feature, that global high activation is often a feature of birth trauma, whether or not someone was able to tell you about it or, you know, because you can't remember it, you might not even know it happened. Nobody might have ever thought to tell you anything about it, but you might just have this quality of, of global high activation. And I think that goes back to what we said earlier about that you don't necessarily have to, and maybe you don't want to remember the trauma, but you can see the byproduct of whatever that is, and then, and then begin to work just because yeah. you believe that probably there is a trauma and, and maybe it isn't better to remember it, but you can still work on it. 
you just you just address this the the everybody has um everybody has things you know they're they're judgmental they're perfectionist they're anxious they're angry um uh you know they feel like they have to control everything everybody has things and you just address those things and we start by creating a you know more of a container so that we like the activation isn't quite so activating we don't like go rushing straight into like what's the worst thing that ever happened in your life just start by like noticing the body and you know being with it and that all by itself starts to like And then as you start to like come into a place where you have a little bit more capacity, you can process maybe a little bit more activation and little by little, you're one of my teachers, Lyle Keen uses a metaphor of a pot and cooking carrots. And if the pot is very, very tiny and it's full of carrots, they're not going to cook. But if you take even the tiniest pot and you take the tiniest little sliver of carrot and you can cook a tiny little sliver of carrot pretty quickly, even in a tiny little pot. And every time you cook a little carrot, the pot magically gets a little bigger and you could cook a little more carrot, but you just like keep using the smallest possible piece. And we refer to that as titration. So we're always using the smallest possible piece of activation. And it's like a fractal, you know, like all these patterns, we've been talking about patterns, they're all like fractals where the largest iteration and the smallest iteration are basically the same. So if you take the smallest iteration and you change something, oh, you're actually making more profound changes in the bigger picture than it might seem. That's beautiful. I never thought of it that way. Yes, Mary Lee. Um, so, so Alia, um, what you're saying is so, so beautiful on, for me on two levels. One is just the, the caveat that sometimes we'll do work and it's, and, and the client will just go, well, I didn't, I didn't notice any difference, but just because they don't notice it right at the moment doesn't mean there aren't big changes going on. So that's Things happen over time for sure. Yes. Yes. And, um, uh, the, the other thing that I, that I like what you're saying about the, hmm, just sort of, uh, taking time to feel. So that's what I've been saying about connecting, anchoring to an internal awareness is so, is so important. So thank you for those points. You're welcome. I, I would add just to, as, as briefly as I can, that so much of the time in, in our culture, um, I mean, there's a lot of people's cultures probably who are going to see this, but generally speaking, in, in certainly the culture that I grew up in and most people that I know grew up in, we are so encouraged to like not deal with that. Like, oh, I, oh, that hurts. I'm just going to go do this other thing first. My stomach kind of, blah, 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 you know, and, and to like push away every possible men message from the body and to like basically be pretty pissed off at the body because, you know, well, where were you when I needed help? Well, actually, the body was there when you needed that help and it helped in the only way that it could. Um, 
And it's still there, still trying to help, even though now as a grown-up, you don't necessarily need those same survival strategies that you desperately needed in the moment when those things happened. It's still, you know, trotting out those same survival strategies and just hoping that someday the alarm bell will be turned off so we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> and you can just sort of start holding yourself in compassion like, oh, honey, it's okay. You did good. Look, we're still here. And I'm here for you now. And, and it's going to be all right. And I think that's important to mention that whenever this happened, you were doing the best you could. Yes. Is to, you you were trying to cope and you were doing the best that you could given whatever skills you had, which obviously as a small child, maybe less skills than you would have as an adult. Yeah. And you coped. I mean, here you are uh -huh. watching this. Exactly. If you're watching yep. this, you coped. <laughs> you made it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I can I riff with that? Yes. yes. Alia, I love what you just said. And I think the, the thing is it, not only do we are we inclined to not listen to the body when it gives us messages, but we also inclined to either take painkillers or dull them down with alcohol or whatever. We want do the calisthenics. Symptoms. Yeah, we want the <laughs> symptom to go away rather than thinking, well, buddy, thank you. You're telling me something. Maybe you're trying to help me. But I want to say that um, in in a therapy setting, we tend to think in terms of um, healing, supporting or alleviating something that feels difficult. Um, and in the framework that I like to think of, I like to think also of what's beyond the therapy what's beyond the um that supported situation what's the fullness is there, is there a way of transforming the thorn which gives us an impetus to do something it says go somewhere do something something doesn't feel complete to transform it into um positive action that ends up expanding our life and mm -hmm. i've noticed so many of the of the therapists who i think are very inspiring and very compassionate have had a lot of um intense trauma in their background and i noticed in myself i had an early infancy lack of um handling because i was born in a kibbutz at the time when they thought children were the children of the state and anyway the parents were very busy working most of the time i i, lo I look at a lot of people who inspire me and think, well, somehow in their journey, they've been fortunate enough to read the signs, be supported at the right time, find ways that really satisfy them. And in a way to make sense of that pain by transforming it into something that serves others, which is a kind of a long-term version of the story that you would, I think it was Aliyah, you were talking about if in a disaster, you can get involved in the disaster relief then immediately that disempowerment becomes something else and some of those feelings will move through. It's a kind of longer version of that. But I'm very interested in all the arrows that can point people towards expressive, pleasurable ways of, of being more in touch with yourself and others. Um, and actually kind of almost make sense of that thorn and say, well, okay, it spurred me to um, go out of my comfort zone and live a bigger life. Chiron, the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. Yes. We do have a question here about uh, 
do you feel we should have more dance in schools from a young age? Any thoughts about that? I, I definitely we all do. Agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. Not everyone has much space in their home or much encouragement from their parents. And children don't really need to learn how to dance. They can teach us. They know. Yes. They know. They they've got their own movements. They imitate animal movements. Um, and normally they seem most children that I've met get huge pleasure from dance before they start to feel inhibited. Yeah. But so, yeah. I think this is a good a good thing to do with kids. It's like just, you know, like I have playlists for my grandchildren. So have your little playlist of five songs or something. And when they come home from school, just put it on and let them run around the house. It's not a yeah. big, but that kind of goes back to that um, communal dance, you know, as a, as a cultural release. You can do that in your own home is just to have, and like I said, just some playlists. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to prepare it, but just have something that can um, that you can play for the children and they'll do their own thing. They don't need to be led into it. And also, I think it can be when 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 my kids were growing up, I I um, for five years, I, I taught creative dance for kids and uh, yeah, they are so creative and I used to get them to listen to the music and draw and, and I used to draw the story. It was always around a story that they kind of created themselves. And um, if they were angry, you know, they could they could just express it. It's just, yeah. And and as Stefan says, I mean, my, I've got a granddaughter of two and, you know, she's dancing like mad, you know, and it's there inside. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes that <laughs> i'm also thinking of the the very vulnerable um tricky time of adolescence and huge changes in in who you are how you connect with the world um and all and your internal chemistry and what you're interested in and all sorts of things are going on um and anything that encourages expression and connection with other people to me is going to be hugely supportive I expect that's where street dancing came from, like, you know, um, break dancing and all of that was probably as an outlet to, to, um, and they probably were adolescents or young adults that were, were doing that. That's a very interesting thing also with people at, at that stage, especially having your own identity is so important. So it, it might be nice to learn some dancing from somebody else, but it might be more empowering to find your own kind of your own groove. Yes. Well, on, on just a, this is Mary Lee, um, just a yeah. shadow side. Um, uh, if we want to squish a culture like we did in the United States, one thing, one of the things you do is you say, you, you, you may not dance your own native dances that's illegal. So mm. it's, it's it, anyway, just, I'm just saying dance, every culture has their own dance. And if you want to push down that culture, you could, one thing to do is just prohibit the dance. And that's happened all over the world, I believe. 
That's a big fundamentalist sure. push for sure. Yes. Sorry, go and, ahead. And I'm sure that's a lot of what, uh, you know, why we stopped moving, that we were just not encouraged as a, a kind of a way to to control is just don't allow people to dance. Don't allow people. It was, you know, take it out of the schools, take it, make, don't make it something common. It's, it's an art. It's over there somewhere. Um, you don't want to be a dancer. <laughs> All these messages that are sent out, you know, <laughs> dancers don't survive. <laughs> there, there's, there's a, there's a um, silly joke that from decades ago, but it was something about, why, why do they frown on having intercourse standing up? It might lead to dancing. <laughs> uh, any parting thoughts that it, we've, I've kept you on here quite a long time. So I, um, any parting thoughts that anyone would like to share uh, before we, before we sign off? Just go ahead, Alia. You can heal. You can heal. It is absolutely physically possible that, you know, and it might take time and it might take focus. And, it, you know, one of the things I like about somatic experiencing is that it's actually a pretty, pretty pleasant model and, and you can do it. You can feel so much better and it can begin to happen very, very quickly. I used I to think, hate myself. I like myself now. <laughs> <laughs> and I think dance is a beautiful way to do. I mean, it's fun and creative and, and why not? It's not some harsh medicine that you need to take and, and swallow down, but it is something that is actually fun to do. So, um, Definitely. Does anyone have any any ways to maybe encourage people? Any first steps that that people might want to take? Okay. You might, you might want to read. You might want to read my. Oh, where is yes, it? Yes, there it is. Read my book because uh -huh. there are a lot of exercise. Oh, I can't find the right place. There a lot of is. exercises in there at the chapter's end, which are very um, tailored to trauma support and tra moving through trauma. And I'm learning so much today. I realize that, you know, there's a lot more um, resources out there, but this is one place to start. There's always more. And and that is Stefan's new project is to create oh, nice. a resource uh, yeah. center. So um, we'll keep you in, in touch with him. But um, and also I interviewed Stefan, so I will link this to I'll put that in the show notes so yes. that if you want to um, see that interview. Well, let me just then. Uh, I'd just like to say, yeah, yes. um, yeah, that dance is transformational. And um, just to keep on dancing, put some music on and start where you are. If you feel sad, you know, angry, start with that and sit and just mm. follow your body and, and, and it's like a an opening and you will feel different afterwards. So yeah, just keep on dancing. And I think most of our guests also have online options. So you can you can uh, follow up with them. But let me just do that. Let me just give you some 
some contacts for our guests. So Rebecca, her website is dancinginsideout.com. So you can, do you have any up and coming events or, or, um, or online events? Uh, well, I do a full moon dance once a month. Um, yeah, and that's, that's not just dance, it's tuning in and dancing and sharing and writing. And um, I've got a course online that I'm co-running with a yoga person, Tara, um, in May uh, called w Women Weaving Wisdom, about women getting into their more mature, mature years and, um, you know, expressing that and feeling empowered and, yeah, everything that goes with it, yeah. Okay, so check out... Rebecca's website, and you can find out more about that. And Stefan, what about you? Do you have any up and coming events? You betcha. <laughs> it's so nice <laughs> to dance with real people, <laughs> huggable people. Um, Saturday, March the 19th, we've got two bands coming. One is essentially a circle dance band, and one is essentially for free expression dance with a very Af Afro uh, Latin influence and lots of big drums um that's in ipswich in england and in the same area we've got something called on april the 23rd we're doing a passion parade which will be dance music and kind of um rather exotic uh funny funny version of a fashion parade and in early may in northampton i'm doing a day and at the end of may we'll be we've got um of course, we've got two weeks in Greece and there are actually spaces on the first week still, uh, perhaps three or four spaces left. So contact me through the website if any of that sounds like fun. Um, I'm doing a regular class on Thursday mornings in Ipswich, which is not circle dance, funnily enough. It's expressive movement, relaxation uh, with some live music. And you can find Stefan at www.dancewise.net and www.worlddance.org if you want to get in touch with him. And okay. can I just add, there will soon be a new website which is very much related to mental and emotional health and with a special emphasis on trauma support and trauma transformation. So um, contact me if that, if that interests you. Excellent. Okay. And Mary Lee, do you have anything up and coming? Um, I, I do. Uh, it's... It, it has to do with attunement, um, and it's um, so on February second. So it was two, 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 two. We had worldwide mm. duet dance, um, all on Zoom, and uh, a film is being. We had ninety uh, film. We said so we had one hundred and eighty dancers, and ninety uh, duet films. So that's been um, uh, the. The final film, the final version is being created and it will be up on my website, which is Global Sight Performance. Um, so it's 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 sort of a sidebar to, to our trauma talk, but still I, I, I feel like connecting with people around. So we had people on all six continents, many countries connecting. So I, I think that's very healing for our world. That sounds beautiful, yes. Okay. And uh, yes, if you want to contact with Mary Lee, you'll go to globalsiteperformances.org. That's her website. 
And Alia, what about you? Do you have up and coming events? Oh, you're muted. I do. Thank you. <laughs> I have, you know, some ongoing, most of what I do is online because I live out in the sticks. So I have um, ongoing belly dance classes in April. I'm starting a class that is very much a combination of belly dance and SE principles. So it will have a lot of grounding and it'll have a lot of free expression. While we're pitching our books, yes. this is mine. <laughs> um, Midnight at the Crossroads, yes. And, and it really goes very deeply into the, just the jewel. I just am so impressed with belly dance. Like the deeper I get in it, the more I'm like, oh my gosh because it really is quite astounding and talks about all of those connections between um, belly dance and trauma healing. Uh, and I am putting, yeah, so just come hang out. And I made a little thing, it isn't there yet, but it, it's um, aliathabit.com slash um, healing trauma with dance is the, the name of the page and I'll put some home practice, like a little booklet of home practice options there for people who would like to start experimenting oh. with that. Exploring Excellent, I can put say. that, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, Thank you. You can give me that. So yes, Alia's website is aliathabit.com. She's also on Instagram, Belly Dance Soul. And you can also find her on Facebook. Her name again, Alietha. <laughs> okay. Thank Excellent. You. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you all for, for being here. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and, and have this conversation. Um, as I said, I'm kind of a beginner. You, you all have more experience. So I'm, I'm excited to learn from you and, and your experiences. So thank you. Thank you for being here. All right. Such a, such a lovely such a opportunity. I actually, I thought maybe with this number of people, we'd just be skimming on the surface and it was the opposite. I felt we really went deep and, and sort of informed each other. I really yeah. loved it. I'm so happy to meet all of you too. This is really, yeah. really great. Yes, yes mm -hmm. it's wonderful. Yes. And thanks again, Leslie, for gathering us and Stefan for your idea. Yeah. <laughs> See, when people come together, great things happen. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> oh, All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. So, as you can oh. see, I'm I'm losing my um the light here, so <laughs> I think it's time to it's time to end this. And before we go, I just want to tell you that the next guest will be Amara Pagano. She's the co-founder of One Dance Tribe and the creator of Path of Azul. And that's going to be, that will uh, premiere on March 13th at 4 p.m. Universal Time. So thank you for being here and uh, your comments and your questions. And please share. If you found this an interesting conversation, please share it with your friends and let them know um, that it's here. And also, if you subscribe, you'll be notified when new videos come up. 
All right. So until next time, thank you. Bye-bye.